You're listening to Surreal Sports Stories with your host, Mike Ginocchio. It's one of the most famous photos in sports history. It's a boxing ring, the camera poking upwards from ringside, and it captures a majestic sight. Sprawled on the ground is Sonny Liston, the former heavyweight champion of the world. He looks like he got hit by a truck. Said truck stands above him, at the height of his power. A young Muhammad Ali towers over the downed Liston, flexing his right arm in front of him as if to demonstrate to the world that this was the arm that just knocked Liston out. Ali is looking down on Liston, and even with his mouthpiece in, you can see the youthful braggadocio for which Ali was famous. Here, barely a minute into his rematch with the man he took the title from, Ali has defeated Sonny Liston again. In boxing, to defeat someone twice in a row is the equivalent of a coup de gras. No one can doubt your superiority. So what is Ali saying as he gazes down on his inferior competition? Get up and fight, sucker! Yep. That sounds like the Muhammad Ali we all knew and loved. And it's the quote that is forever attached to the photo. But everyone seems to forget the thing that Ali screamed at Liston immediately afterwards. Get up and fight, sucker! Nobody is gonna believe this! Wait, what? Let's rewind the clock back about a year. On February 25th, 1964, Sonny Liston and the man known as Muhammad Ali met for the first time in Miami Beach, Florida for the World Heavyweight Boxing title. Only back then, Ali was still known as Cassius Clay, his birth name. At the start of the fight, Clay was an 8-to-1 underdog. In the hyper-refined world of boxing odds and gambling, 8-to-1 odds are about the equivalent of you getting struck by a bolt of lightning. It's a stupefyingly high order to overcome. Which is what made Clay's victory all the more shocking. He and Liston exchanged blows through the first six rounds, with Clay getting the best of Liston all through the sixth. And to the shock of the world... Liston refused to answer the bell for the start of the seventh round. Cassius Clay was crowned the new heavyweight champion of the world. To understand why this was such a shocker, you have to understand who Sonny Liston was. Decades removed from the fact, we all call Muhammad Ali the greatest of all time. Well, before Muhammad Ali, there was Sonny Liston. And while Muhammad Ali had the poetry of motion and words, as well as the social activism that would make him larger than life one day, Liston had something else entirely. Sonny Liston had menace. Prior to his matchup with Cassius Clay, Sonny Liston was the man who boxing and the nation watched with bated breath and anticipation. But while people would one day watch Muhammad Ali with a sense of awe, people watched Sonny Liston with a sense of dread. Boxing promoter Harold Conrad noted that, quote, When Sonny gave you the evil eye, I don't care who you were, you shrunk to two feet tall. One trainer who trained with both George Foreman and Mike Tyson claimed that Sonny Liston hit harder than either of them. In the lead-up to the first Cassius Clay-Sonny Liston heavyweight title fight, the British champion Sir Henry Cooper said that he'd be interested in a fight with Clay if Clay would win, but he refused to even get in the ring with Liston. Cooper's manager was even more blunt, quote, We don't even want to meet Liston walking down the same street. Sonny Liston was a bad, bad man. He had been frequently in trouble with the law for much of his life, and when he wanted to become a professional fighter, no one would put up the money to sponsor him turning pro. No one, that is, except for people who had ties to those in organized crime. 
To supplement his early income, Sonny Liston worked as an intimidator slash enforcer for racketeers. Basically what Rocky was doing before he actually became a boxer. But unlike Rocky, Liston wasn't the enforcer with a heart of gold type. He was more of the enforcer with hands of steel type. While that helped him make some more money in the 1950s to avoid destitution, it also made him a suspicious and frightening figure to law enforcement and civilians alike. He also established a mythical reputation for being, well, basically indestructible, also incredibly violent. On September 7th, 1954, Liston went eight rounds against his opponent and barely lost in a judge's decision, which is not too shabby considering Liston had had his jaw broken in the third round. In May of 1956, he was confronted by a police officer about a car that was parked near his home in St. Louis. Liston claimed the officer used racist slurs and got into an altercation with him. Sonny Liston would break the officer's knee and gash his face, and when more officers were called to the scene of the crime, Liston allegedly took several nightsticks to the head. That did nothing but make him mad. He would serve six months in prison, and he was forbidden from boxing for a year. Alleged racism from that one cop aside, there is no denying that Sonny Liston was the victim of racism as a professional boxer. He distrusted the press on principle, and they were more than willing to pay this distrust back with unchecked offensiveness. He was called a gorilla in multiple stories, and a 1962 Life magazine profile remarked that Liston had hands, quote, with fingers as big as bananas. And he was constantly, constantly reminded of the fact that he had a history with organized crime. Even if, by the 1960s, Sonny Liston was trying to get past that part of his life. But through it all, one thing was clear. Sonny Liston beat everybody. He cut through challengers in the heavyweight division like a hot knife through butter. And before long, he was set to face the world heavyweight champion, Floyd Patterson. When it came to the fight, the question wasn't about who was going to win. It was, how quickly is Sonny Liston going to destroy Patterson? But even though everyone and their brother knew that Liston would win this fight, no one was really happy about it. Consider the social context. It's the 1960s, and the civil rights movement is taking off in America. This movement was predicated on, with the knowledge of hindsight, presenting black America as a strong and resilient entity that is unjustly and unfairly crushed by a racist system. And part of what would be needed to break that system was implanting this idea that the civil rights movement, with its strong, controlled image, is the face of black America. Sonny Liston and his criminal, violent image ran antithetical to that presentation. It also didn't help that Liston was once asked about why he didn't take part in protests in the South, and he snapped back, quote, I ain't got no dog-proof ass. The NAACP told Floyd Patterson to avoid the fight. Even President John F. Kennedy told Floyd Patterson to avoid the fight, as he felt that Liston as champion would be harmful to the image of African Americans. Well, Patterson stuck to his convictions of being a fighting champion, and he went to face Sonny Liston. And, sticking to his guns, Floyd Patterson was crushed. On September 25th, 1962, in front of over 18,000 fans, Floyd Patterson got knocked out in the first round. He'd rematch Sonny Liston the following year, and he would do better this time. He lasted four more seconds in the rematch before getting knocked out again. As famed sports writer Jim Murray put it, quote, Floyd can't beat Sonny at anything but a spelling bee. Liston could probably knock him out via smoke signals, and Floyd will probably get woozy if Liston just drove past his house in Scarsdale. 
You knew the fight was over as soon as you saw Floyd had forgotten a sledgehammer. And thus, Sonny Liston, the grouchy, violent, frightening monster, was the heavyweight champion of the world. And it seemed like no one could stop him. Until, on a February evening in 1964, Cassius Clay battered him into submission. And the boxing world was upended once again. If there's one thing that boxing lives for more than anything else, it's booking a rematch. Add in a cocky young upstart who dethroned the former champion in a shocking upset, and you have a license to print money. Also, keep in mind that when it comes to crafting narratives, few sports do it better than boxing. Boxing crafted the narratives surrounding the Mickey Ward-Arturo Gatti trilogy of fights so inspiring that it birthed the Oscar-winning film The Fighters, starring Mark Wahlberg and Christian Bale. Before that, there was the story of James Bulldog Braddock, whose upset of the world heavyweight champion Max Bayer during the Great Depression earned him the nickname Cinderella Man, which inspired the Oscar-nominated film starring Russell Crowe. And of course, there's Rocky. So the narrative of a rematch between Liston and Clay basically wrote itself. And it was a license to print money, right? After all, Sonny Liston was clearly the villain here, right? Oh boy. It's easy to forget or misremember with almost 60 years of distance between the event, but back then, Muhammad Ali might have been hated almost as much as Sonny Liston was. Even when he was still Cassius Clay, people were getting sick of him. Today we look back at Muhammad Ali's legendarily quick wit as something to admire. But back then, the establishment of boxing and the nation viewed him like you'd view a particularly obnoxious younger sibling. He never shut up. And his style seemed ill-suited for the heavyweight division. Jim Murray wrote that, quote, The only thing at which Clay can beat Liston is reading the dictionary. And figured that the fight would be, quote, The most popular fight since Hitler and Stalin. 180 million Americans rooting for a double knockout. And then he went and joined the Nation of Islam. Muhammad Ali was always adamant that his conversion to Islam was a matter of true religious principle. But the social-political ramifications of his decision was staggering. The Nation of Islam was classified as a black separatist group, and their leader, Elijah Muhammad, was viewed as a controversial figure who sought to inflame race tensions between whites and blacks. Prior to Ali's joining, the most prominent figure in the Nation of Islam was Malcolm X. In the lead-up to his first fight with Liston, Ali had become very close to Malcolm X, which deeply unsettled white America and infuriated black America, most of whom scorned X for his attacks on Martin Luther King and the rest of the civil rights movement. So those who were in favor of African-American civil rights viewed Ali's conversion to the nation as a nightmare scenario. Sonny Liston was terrible PR in that he was the archetype of a scary, law-breaking, uneducated quote-unquote thug, but Muhammad Ali was something even more dangerous and damaging to the cause. Ali was a sucker for the camera, and he was a great quote, and he was unafraid to speak his mind. To have someone of such charisma backed by such an aggressive entity as the Nation of Islam was viewed as a terrible blow to race relations in the U.S. Even the Reverend Martin Luther King himself commented, Remarking, quote, when Cassius Clay joined the black Muslims and started calling himself Cassius X, he became a champion of racial segregation. That's not quite a fair brush to paint Muhammad Ali with, though. Sure, Elijah Muhammad was a black separatist. And yes, Malcolm X was considered the mouthpiece for aggressiveness in the struggle for black rights in America. 
but Ali's own position on things was molded far more by Malcolm X's ideas than Elijah Muhammad's. Privately, Malcolm X was getting tired of Elijah Muhammad. He was offended by Muhammad's scandalous personal life, and he was beginning to question the man's ideology. After Ali's first victory over Sonny Liston, and Malcolm X's famed trip to Mecca in April of 1964, things changed. Ali and Malcolm X were good friends, and between the two of them, they hatched the plan. Remember, boxing does narratives better than any sport in America, and here, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X created a narrative that challenged the very core of America. As the New York Times noted, Ali, quote, refused to play the mild and socially uninvolved sports hero stereotype, and began to use the news conference as a platform for social political theory. More bluntly, Ali would straight up tell reporters, quote, I don't have to be what you want me to be. I'm free to be who I want. And what he wanted was to be a loud voice against racial injustice in America. And he wanted to make the status quo uncomfortable. Put even more simply, Ali wasn't wrong when he called out racism in America or when he pointed out the ingrained problems of how black athletes had to be a credit to their race. He was just an asshole in how he said these things. Sonny Liston, for his part, did absolutely nothing to change people's opinions of him in between the fights. He would get arrested later that year, when the arresting officer noted that Liston was driving between 76 and 80 miles per hour in a residential zone. In addition, a loaded 22 caliber revolver was found in his coat pocket, and there were empty vodka bottles found in the car. The young woman with whom Liston was driving with was not arrested. Amusingly, the arresting officer did not know who Liston was until he took him to the station to be booked, whereupon one of the other officers looked up from his desk and said, Oh, hello, Sonny. So, we've got two quite hateable figures in the eyes of the public gearing up for a rematch. Maybe Jim Murray was right. Most of America was probably rooting for a double knockout. But at the very least, it would be a good, clean fight, right? Well, there's more. Boxing has a scummy reputation for a lot of reasons. Namely, that it is a sport so crooked and run by people so crooked that it all makes the mafia blush. And everyone is in on the fix. As a former boxing manager and self-admitted fight fixer puts it, quote, We fixed fights because it was the smart thing to do. Boxing was so corrupt that at the time, Congress was investigating the sport for active corruption and all manners of white-collar crimes. Kind of the pot calling the kettle black there, but that's another story. With that in mind, this next story perhaps highlights the classic argument that boxing is a fixed sport. Here's some context. Any professional boxing match that is dubbed official is regulated by a boxing governing body. If the match does not follow the rules of the governing body, then that body can declare the match unsanctioned. An unsanctioned match is really difficult to get off the ground, because if a state gaming commission agrees to take it, then they don't have any help getting insurance, proper preparations in place, medical treatment, etc. that the boxing governance body could usually provide. Now, there are a boatload of boxing governance bodies out there so it is technically possible to circumvent the authority of one governing body by getting approval from another. You just have to make sure that you're not pissing off the wrong boxing agency. Unfortunately, this would involve angering the World Boxing Association, the oldest and most influential of boxing governance bodies in the world. Here's how it went down. World Boxing Association, otherwise known as the WBA, 
have contracts between fighters that are explicitly prohibited from containing rematch clauses, where a losing fighter gets right of first refusal to take on the guy who just beat them. This is designed to prevent a heavyweight champion from, say, I don't know, losing a shocker to a massive underdog, immediately booking a rematch, easily reclaiming his title belt, and before you know it, instead of having one big heavyweight championship payday, he's gotten two. Do you see where I'm going with this? It was discovered that the promotion company that sponsored Sonny Liston and the promotion company that sponsored Muhammad Ali had entered into a secret contract that more or less promised Liston a rematch against Ali if he were to have lost their original fight. On paper, the contract seemed legal, but one of the lawyers from the company representing Ali testified to Congress that it was basically, in his words, subterfuge. The WBA warned both Ali and Liston not to agree to the rematch. So, naturally, they agreed to the rematch. In response, the WBA stripped Ali of its heavyweight title and dropped Sonny Liston from its rankings. However, other major boxing entities continued to recognize Ali as the world heavyweight champ. Then, the WBA put the screws to basically every state in the union to prevent them from hosting the fight. Massachusetts got brave and agreed to host the fight, and the WBA responded by suspending Massachusetts Boxing Commission. Undaunted, Massachusetts scheduled the fight for November of 1964, and Liston was the odds-on favorite. But then about a month before the fight, Ali needed surgery to fix a strangulated hernia, and the fight got pushed back to the next year. During that interim, Massachusetts relented and announced they would no longer host the rematch. The fact that there were growing concerns about the fight's promoters being tied to organized crime and Liston getting arrested again made it probably an easy decision for Massachusetts to back out. So in comes the state of Maine to the rescue. The new venue would be in the town of Lewiston, Maine, population 41,000, and the ring would be a repurposed junior hockey ring. The governor of Maine at the time, John Reed, who had stepped in to save the match personally, would go on to boast, quote, This is one of the greatest things to happen in Maine. It was a shit show. First, in between the two Ali Liston fights, Malcolm X had been assassinated. The men in jail for the crime were reported members of the Nation of Islam. There were fears that Ali would be killed in retaliation by Malcolm loyalists. The FBI was spooked enough by the threat that they assigned a 12-man team to guard Ali 24-7. Ali, for his part, came out to the ring flanked by the Fruits of Islam, the paramilitary wing of the Nation of Islam. It was a strange night, and it was only going to get stranger. The night had started off badly enough, when singer Robert Goulet butchered the national anthem so badly that one Boston Globe writer grumbled that, quote, Ali hit the wrong guy. But when Ali and Liston got into the ring, everyone was ready. Here is a chance to see history made. Liston, for his part, had issued a stark warning to people who questioned his ability to finish Ali. Quote, Don't blink, or you'll miss the knockout. He wasn't kidding. Here's how it went down. About a minute into the first round, after both fighters were toying with each other a little bit, Sonny Liston came at Ali with a left jab. Ali countered with a right jab, and down went Liston, flat on his back. He got up to his knee, and then fell back to his back again. That should be it, right? Liston is in no condition to fight. Well, here's where the story gets weird. 
The referee of the night, Jersey Joe Walcott, had the unenviable task of administering the countout. Usually that's pretty easy, but it's unenviable because Walcott was distracted by the fact that he could not keep Ali in a neutral corner. Ali was dancing around the ring, screaming and shouting at Liston to get up and fight. After Walcott finally managed to get Ali to a corner, he went back to Liston to see that Liston had fallen on his back again. So how long had Liston been down? The rules are that if a boxer is counted out to 10, then the fight is over. So Walcott looked over to the timekeeper, Francis Madano, to pick up the count. How long had it been? 9 seconds? 19 seconds? McDonough would later claim that Walcott never once looked over to him. The crowd was building to a fever pitch. Ali continued to talk trash at Liston. Walcott had no idea how long Liston had been down, and the timekeeper wasn't helping him. Things were becoming chaotic. Also, how had Ali knocked Liston down? To most everyone in the crowd, it looked like Ali hadn't even made contact, and yet all of a sudden the former champ was on his back looking at the lights. Everyone had paid for a knockout, sure, but this seemed suspect. People were starting to chant, Fix! 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 Here's how Walcott tells it. Quote, The timekeeper was waving both hands and saying, I counted him out, the fight is over. Nate Flesher, the editor of The Ring, was seated besides McDonald and he was waving his hands, too, also saying it was over. So armed with the maybe confirmation of the timekeeper and a boxing magazine editor, Walcott turned to both Ali and Liston, who were on their feet preparing to fight, and waved it off. The match was over. Ali had defeated Liston again. And almost immediately afterwards, the finger-pointing began. Walcott took heat in the press for apparently losing control of the fight. He was adamant that he was focusing on Ali and not the count because he viewed Ali's conduct after the punch as the most important issue. Quote, He looked like a man in a different world. I didn't know what he might do. I thought he might stomp him or pick him up and belt him again. Timekeeper McDonough also blamed Ali, remarking that, quote, If that bum Clay had gone to a neutral corner instead of running around like a maniac, all this trouble would have been avoided. But the fact is that everyone has a piece of the blame here. Sure, Ali should not have been freaking out in the ring, but Walcott was within his authority to stop the count if a boxer won't go to a neutral corner, and it is the responsibility of the timekeeper to pick up the count as soon as things settle. Because of this cluster, there was a great sense of confusion. And then the controversy shifted. Did Ali actually hit Liston? Footage of Ali in the ring after the fight could be seen of him clearly asking, Did I hit him? And some weren't convinced that the mighty Sonny Liston could be taken down with a punch that no one really saw. George Chuvalo, a fellow pro boxer who had fought Ali, thought it was all a joke, remarking, quote, That punch wouldn't have knocked out my baby. But others seemed to think it was legit. Quote, It was a good lick. He really got him, Floyd Patterson noted. Former champ Rocky Marciano was at first suspicious, but then reversed course upon seeing film the next day. And what about Sonny Liston? Quote, It was a good right-handed punch, Liston said. It made me groggy. Well, seems the matter is settled then, right? Controversial ending, but a pretty clear admission of defeat. Well, nothing is ever that easy. Remember that boxing is the sport of narratives, and the narrative that Liston got beat by Ali on a cheap punch doesn't sit well with some fans. As time went on, another narrative surrounded the fight, the idea that Sonny Liston had thrown it. 
Part of this insecurity comes from the known reputation of boxing as a sport that likes pulling fast ones on its audience. But also there spawned a cottage industry of hot takes and reactions and armchair analysis about whether or not Ali had actually hit Liston. First, there was the fact that Ali claimed this quote-unquote phantom punch was actually an anchor punch taught to him by famed comedian and vaudevillian Stephen Fetchett. And then Ali never made mention of using the phantom punch in another match for his career. Aha, a comedian teaching a boxer how to throw a magic punch? That sounds like a total lie to disguise the fact that Ali never hit him. Or it's just another example of Ali running his mouth and saying whatever he knew would air. It doesn't really mean anything. But then the cottage industry turned to Sonny Liston and his account of things. But that's the thing. Sonny Liston kept changing his story. Right after the fight, he said the punch made him groggy. But then he would later tell Jerry Eisenberg of the Newark Star-Ledger that, quote, the timekeeper couldn't count, and therefore that was the reason why he lost. And then in another interview with Dave Anderson, Liston claimed that the punch wasn't actually all that hard and that he'd been confused by the ref not counting him out, noting that, quote, I got mixed up because the referee never gave me a count. But nothing beats the story that Liston told Sports Illustrated's Mark Cram. Quote, That guy Ali was crazy. I didn't want nothing to do with him. And the Muslims were coming up. Who needed that? So I went down. I wasn't hit. So if you're keeping score, we went from, yeah, he got me, to, well, he got me, but the timekeeper couldn't do his job, to, well, he got me, but the referee didn't do his job, to, Ali and the black Muslims were crazy, so I took a dive so I wasn't killed. If you ask me, I'm thinking that Liston just couldn't admit the truth. By the time he fought Ali again in Lewiston, he just didn't have it anymore. And his star was eclipsed by Muhammad Ali in ways far beyond the boxing ring. We all know Muhammad Ali's story. He went from villain to hero over the course of the 20th century, with his famed refusal to serve in the Vietnam War being viewed as a courageous stand for one's principles in retrospect because the decision cost him his reputation and years of his career. He would go on to spend the rest of his life as a social justice and civil rights activist, and his work in raising awareness for Parkinson's disease, the nebulous illness that he developed in retirement, gave a face to a disease that few understood. Even now, when mentioning his name, the only thing that people think of when they think of Muhammad Ali is the greatest. And as for Sonny Liston, he would never again reach the heights that he had in the past, and he would never match Muhammad Ali. Part of that was personality. He always viewed Ali's braggadocio as ridiculous in a sideshow. But because of that surliness and menace that defined him, Liston never truly escaped from the shadows of his youth and the dark parts of his life. He never shook allegations that he had thrown the fight to Ali. And, to add more craziness to the story, even how Sonny Liston died is a matter of controversy. He was found dead in his Las Vegas home in January of 1971. His wife Geraldine had discovered his body after coming home from a long trip, though the coroner's office declared that he had died several days prior to his discovery. The murky circumstances of his death continue to cloud Sonny Liston's legacy years after the fact. But even the circumstances of his death pale to the shadow that Muhammad Ali cast over him. The two fights of Ali and Liston marked a turning point for both of them. They marked the end of Liston's star as well as the rise of Ali's. One became a legend and one became forgotten. So how did Liston feel about the man who beat him and, in essence, ended him? Consider this story from Liston's final professional fight. 
1970, and he's just won against Chuck Wepner in the Jersey City Armory. He's sitting in the locker room, savoring the moment, and answering a few questions from reporters. All of a sudden, there's a roar outside. Someone turns and shouts, It's Muhammad Ali! In a flash, the throng of reporters surges in the direction of the new big thing. Just like that, Sonny Liston is forgotten. All he's left with is his friend who came backstage with him. Sonny Liston turned to his friend and scowled, quote, That fucker just won't go away. This has been another episode of Surreal Sports Stories. Sources for today's episode come from the Chicago Tribune, The Guardian, Bleacher Report, The Evening Independent, Sports Illustrated, ESPN.com, Deadspin.com, The New York Times, and many more. Surreal Sports Stories can be found on sites such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Breaker.audio, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and many more. If you like the show, feel free to drop a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time. I'm your host, Mike Ginocchio. Stay steady, y'all.